and welcome to From the Newsroom, the weekly podcast of the Holland Sentinel. I am uh, government reporter Arpan Lobo, and today I'm joined by our managing editor, Audra Gamble. And Audra, today we're here to talk about a couple of things, um, the Iowa caucus, or the attempt at the Iowa caucus, <laughs> and some campaign fu- uh, finance from right here in Michigan. But anyway, Absolutely. we'll start with the Iowa caucus. Uh, so Audra, it's uh, it was a long night. <laughs> it's Tuesday now. It's Tuesday morning, about eleven fifteen, and um, the caucus happened yesterday, and we still don't have results. Yeah. Um, and you talked about last week, kind of what exactly is a caucus and how it's different from a primary, and uh, you know, really paying attention to one for the first time. I got to say, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm glad that we don't do that in Michigan. But anyway, what are your kind of thoughts? Um, just uh, for those of you that don't know, at the time of recording this. We still don't have results. Of yeah, we have no clue who won. Who won? <laughs> which one, which of the Democratic nominee or nominees uh, or Democratic candidates won um, Iowa's delegates? So anyway, Audra, what are your kind of thoughts just yeah, on this entire situation um, <laughs> and where we are now? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that um, a caucus is something that's very fascinating to watch. Uh, if you're not familiar, you know, in, in Michigan, we have a primary, you show up to your polling location, you check the box that you want to vote for. Um, you can choose either a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot in, in a presidential primary like this situation. Um, and then you're on your merry way and you go back home or to work or whatever. And it takes 10 minutes. If you're lucky, you might have to stand in line, you know, we're thinking 30, 40 minutes tops here. That's super not the case. Um, when you're caucusing. You have to show up to wherever your precinct location is, and then you have to stay there and you have to go to whatever corner of the room is designated for your particular candidate. And you're all standing there with your friends and neighbors and your children's school teachers and your banker and all of these other things in the community. And you're, you have to physically show up and... Um, you know, if there's there's kind of this little pool of undecided people in the center of the room and there are precinct captains that um, will be particularly informed on a, a specific candidate and they will try to sway those people in that little undecided pot. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the night, you have people in all of these different corners and um, delegates are proportionally um, given to candidates that meet a certain viability threshold. So it's a much more um, involved community-based situation. However, <laughs> um, it's very problematic in a lot of ways. Um, it is also um, challenging for people that might work third shift or have small children at home and don't have a babysitter or um, maybe um, disabled and aren't able to, to physically, um, you know, be in one space for that long or, um, you know, may not have transportation or, you know, it, it can be very limiting in who is able to go. Um, and we also saw last night that um, it can be this very strange informal mishmash of rules all across the state. Um, there were some precincts in which, so there in the state, there's between 1600 and 1700 precincts. And some people were like scribbling the, the results of how many people were in, in each corner for each candidate on like 
scrap envelopes. And there were some people that were, um, they had a tie among some candidates and they literally picked a name out of a hat to pick the winner of that precinct. I saw a um, picking a name out of a hat and I also saw a coin toss. Yeah. Yeah. As, as our founders intended. <laughs> uh, so it's, I mean, it's kind of a journey, but it's also fascinating to watch on TV. Um, unfortunately, we still don't have the results um, and the Iowa Democratic Party is under some serious heat for that. Uh, there seem to be quite a few things that went wrong. Um, the the people that were in charge of precincts were supposed to report these results via a new app that was supposed to streamline this process instead of calling into like a hotline phone bank situation. They were just going to put, you know, the data into this app and it was going to be great and we'd have results by, you know... 10 o'clock and it would be fine. And, you know, that's really not what happened. (laughs) Um, So there are now kind of increased conversations that had already been happening about, well, why is Iowa first? Why are we doing this? Why are we caucusing? Should we do this next time? Um, So there's a lot of rumblings of, oh, my gosh, so many things went wrong. You know, how did this happen? And, you know, what does this mean for the candidates moving forward? Right. And we can talk about the candidates because Iowa being first is meant to be kind of the first boost uh, to any campaign. You win Iowa, you set the tone for the rest of your campaign. And you and I have talked about uh, on these podcasts so much. It's like, oh, we can look at polls all we want. But until we get to a concrete, you know, win or lose or first, second, third, fourth situation, it's hard to determine who's ahead in the race. And uh we're kind of – I was listening uh, to – I think I was watching on CNN last night. One of the many pundits they had, they had like 13 different guys at one Yeah, that table. big panel. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, oh, newspapers, you know, newspapers are going to go to bed. And, you know, we uh, have a 6 p.m. deadline, so that wouldn't count to us. But there are papers, you know, that maybe this morning – or last night got to a point where like, okay, we can't wait for the Yeah, I mean, at some point the papers have to be printed, right? right? There's there's um, physical things that need to happen. So it's weird in a couple uh, facets. So even if they they had gotten the results, say, by midnight or 1 a.m. last night, a candidate would have been robbed of, you know, those headlines. Right. And even now they're robbed of those headlines, and the candidates have already moved on. The New Hampshire primary is a week away, Mm -hmm. and most of the candidates have left Iowa without even knowing – most of them kind of uh, came out last night and in some way gave some semblance of a victory speech, some more uh, strong than others in terms right. of feelings of victory. I think Mayor Pete Buttigieg came out and he said, we won Iowa. <laughs> this, Which is very easy to say when this, you can't contradict them with right, any sort you know, of hard it's data. Not, yeah, sure. I, can't, I can't be like, well, actually, because nobody <laughs> knows. Um, Vice President Joe Biden kind of came out and kind of maligned the process a little bit, but... Um, Amy Klobuchar also came out saying, oh, we, we look very good, you know. Yeah, we're but, punching above our weight was, is what she said. Yeah. It was um, interesting, you know. And I, It kind of gave them a little, you know, moment of relief, though, because. There were no losers you, right. last night. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. And it yet. was, yeah, Arpan and I were um, kind of chatting with each other and we were kind of like, all right, like, are you going to bed? Are you going to bed? How late are we going to wait for this? And, um, you know, as the candidates started to to get up and, and give their speeches, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a strategic component of this of, all right, well, it's, you know, 1130 on the East Coast. People are trying to go to bed. What do I do? Do I get on the plane and go to New Hampshire? Do I give a speech? You know, what's going on? Um, and Senator Amy Klobuchar was the first one to, to kind of get up there and be in, and, and say, well, we don't know what happened, but I guess that's good because then technically we didn't lose yet. 
<laughs> um, so see you in New Hampshire. And, you know, a lot of the candidates had had events scheduled for this morning in New Hampshire, and they had to get on a plane and, and book it over there. I mean, it's, you know, the, the schedule is what it is. Um, but there is also kind of a a larger schedule where we talk about that news cycle that the candidates who were potentially in the top three or, you know, whatever you want the the mark of success in Iowa to be, they lose that that sort of momentum and recognition that Iowa traditionally gives candidates. You talk about an Iowa bump, particularly in fundraising totals so that you can continue on into these other states. Um, and often the people that are kind of in the bottom of the pack Iowa is this chance to sort of say, all right, well, <laughs> you know, we may not be viable moving forward. Let's, you know, have a difficult conversation about, you know, how much money we have left. Should we continue on? Like there's some hard conversations that that happen. But when you don't have results, you can't have those conversations yet. Um, so that was sort of an interesting thing to see, especially because tonight, Tuesday, is the State of the Union address. Tomorrow, Wednesday, is the impeachment vote in the Senate. And then coming up, we have a debate in New Hampshire. So you really do start to lose the kind of the attention span of the general public of, you know, say people turn back into what happened in Iowa on, on you know, Wednesday evening or Thursday afternoon when, um, you know, the impeachment vote is done and everything's kind of settled down. You know, who really cares about what happened in Iowa anymore? We've moved on to, to New Hampshire. So when these candidates are spending literal millions of dollars and so many volunteer hours and all of these things in Iowa to to gain that really precious momentum, you know, I can imagine that some of the candidates would feel pretty gypped at this point of, you know, not getting that bump that they were hoping for. I think so, especially you mentioned the resources that are poured into these campaigns. You have canvassers across the state knocking on doors, trying to get people to kind of caucus and and uh, campaign for them. And the situation that we're left in now where it's a day later and we still don't know when right. these results, you know, we hope they'll come out, you know, today. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> you know, it, it's something where this is just something that really makes the Iowa Democratic Party look bad. Yeah. And, um, this this whole situation seems like a giant debacle. Well, and, um, and there were these moments last night where, you know, you kind of have to fill the airtime with something, right? You plan all of this coverage of, okay, now we're going to go to the, the county map and talk about these breakdowns. And you can't do any of that if you don't have any data. So then there were all of these questions on TV of, well, what's going on? Why isn't the Iowa Democratic Party telling us anything? Are they having meetings with the candidates? Who knows what? Like, it was all this this speculation and, and the um, IDP had to put out this statement saying, no, we weren't hacked. <laughs> um, but that's I'm not so sure. Thing. Yeah, that's not a great if, thing. If they have to be like, actually, it's our fault. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it was sort of fascinating to hear the the few details that they did give about what went wrong. Um, so, you know, they had this massive failure of an app that people were supposed to report. But then they kept saying, you know, well, we have fail safes. We have a backup to the backup to the backup to the backup. Maybe they did, but um, you know the the backup was all right. Well, if the app doesn't work, all of these you know um, elections individuals can can call our number just like in the past. But you know if you have this alternative thing that you're trying out, the shiny new toy, you probably didn't have as many people sitting on the phone lines to answer them. Um, and there were reports of of people trying to call in the results and being on hold for 
45 minutes, an hour plus. And there was this heartbreaking moment on Oof, CNN it was, it was a tough where um, this this poor <laughs> this poor, um, you know, gentleman from Iowa who was who was running a precinct was on with Wolf Blitzer and he was on the on a different phone. I'm assuming a cell phone or something. Um, on hold waiting to report the results from his precinct and and he they you know wolf blitzer cuts to him and they're talking about how frustrated he is about you know he's been on hold for however many minutes and then as he's in the interview with wolf blitzer he's the the iowa democratic party line he's not on hold anymore and you can hear like a woman's voice saying hello hello (laughs) and she hung up on him while he was talking to wolf blitzer and this poor man goes (sighs) <sighs> I have to get back in the hold queue. <laughs> you know, and and honestly, I think I think it was kind of Wolf Blitzer's fault because I the, totally the guy, agree. The guy was trying to. He was like, "Wolf, I gotta go." Wolf, I gotta yes, go. yeah. Was like, oh, can we listen in? He was like, he, "Yeah, sure, to, I guess." He had to take a second to think about it. He's just like, oh, is this allowed?" You know, right. sure. It's too late. <laughs> oh, he, that he goes, poor hello, guy. Hello. And then, you know, finally, Wolf hung up uh, on the, Wolf did not apologize. You, you hear, I feel I like know, he should. Oh, it was, man. It was, it was not, not, a, not a great look for our guy, Wolf. No. Oh, it was um, so rough. You could just, like, hear the defeat in that poor precinct guy's voice. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of reports of, of people just giving up because they, you know, they were like, gosh, I've been on hold for so long. I'm just going to try again in the morning. Yeah. It's... It, it's um, it's really a kind of like a sneak peek or not a sneak peek. It was on full display actually of the, but it's kind of like a warning tale of of, please don't let this happen in your state. (laughs) Right. And uh, that's a good segue because I was looking on social media on Twitter, Mm -hmm. Michigan secretary of state, Jocelyn Benson was basically be like, Hey, this (laughs) this could happen here. If we don't, you know, uh, take proper measures. Uh, Ottawa County clerk, Justin Roebuck was tweeting that, you know, we need to support the bills that give, local clerks more time right. to count absentee ballots and count votes. A few weeks ago, I, I reported on what kind of local clerks were doing to kind of get ready because this is a huge election year. And with new voter rules in Michigan, we could have record turnout, as many as 6 million people voting. Um, and some of those people are going to try and register to vote on the same day. And that's possible now due to uh, ballot initiatives that were passed in 2018. But this could end up being something, you know, we're talking about how the Iowa Democratic Party kind of embarrassed himself. That could happen in Michigan, too, for both parties. If, sure. You know, if we get to November and it's like Michigan, one of the key states, key swing state, you know, won by President Trump in 2016, but traditionally Democratic. Mm-hmm. If the it's nation gonna is waiting. It's going to be a big, right. You know, and we're like, we if the clerks just don't have the staff to count these votes, it could be... A very National, late night as well, you know, yeah. Embarrassment. Um, well, and it was, yeah. <laughs> um, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson kind of made me chuckle because um, an election official um, posted this photo of like a straight up like Office Max notepad situation where they had just scribbled like the first names of the candidates with very rough numbers of the people in each corner and that was what they were submitting you know to to the um elections officials in in iowa and um the the person that tweeted it said man this this like makes me break out in a rash (laughs) seeing this because it's so unofficial and you know so informal and and jocelyn benson said same and i felt that (laughs) yeah it was 
it was chaos. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit too about um, part of why it was so chaotic is um, the Iowa Democratic Party decided that they were going to release more sets of results than they had in previous years, which partially is why everything was so slow, because they wanted to check these results against each other in each precinct. And when you're doing that 1700 times, that's a really big undertaking. But again, they had time to prepare for it. So normally the the kind of winner of the caucuses um, is determined by how many delegates they get based on it's like a proportional thing. So percentage wise, you know, how many candidates you get. So it's not a winner take all situation. However, um, they decided to release an additional two sets of information, partially because in 2016, um, Bernie and Hillary had really close number of delegates. So they wanted to give a little bit more context than they had in 2016. And also just because there's so many more candidates this time. So the the threshold in order for your candidate to be viable in the room that you're in is 15%. So however many people are in your precinct, in your community, there has to be 15% in your corner in order for, for your candidate to be counted, basically, in that first alignment. Um, if your candidate isn't viable, you didn't have 15%, then there's a second alignment where you can go and join somebody else's corner. So you kind of have to have like a like a second and third choice situation going into the caucus. Um, so the the Iowa Democratic Party said, all right, we're going to release, you know, the delegate count, the, the kind of real like winner um, answer here. But we're also going to say what the results were after that first alignment, what everybody's first choice was. And then we're going to say what the final alignment was in terms of like raw people. Um, and I, I think that it would be fascinating to see that information. It would give a little bit more transparency, but it's only fascinating if we actually get that data in a timely <laughs> manner. If we don't have any of the sets, I'd rather just the one to be frank. Um, but we did hear kind of anecdotally some um, interesting things going on with those realignments of, um, you know, especially in, in counties where there were colleges or some younger people. Um, there were some big name candidates that weren't viable after that first realignment. I'm sorry, after that first alignment, including, um, you know, Joe Biden, including Elizabeth Warren, including, um, you know, the people that you really would consider a front runner candidate. And we heard that um, in places where Joe Biden did not get to that 15 percent um, threshold in that first alignment, a lot of those candidates or I'm sorry, a lot of those caucus goers shifted over to Pete Buttigieg in that realignment because he is similarly moderate, which I thought was kind of interesting um, that, you know, if you were caucusing for Elizabeth Warren and she wasn't viable in your precinct, then maybe you went to Bernie Sanders instead of someone um, like Amy Klobuchar that was more in the moderate camp. Yeah, and I, we've seen some uh, reports, I know, out of Drake University, uh, Pete Buttigieg, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Warren had uh, the highest, um, I believe, at 27% right behind her was Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, but we have to, you know, preface this by saying we think. We're not sure. Right. Because these, none of this is right. Report, <laughs> reports, but um, it's just something, you know, and I think seeing that they did do a, the, the entrance polling right. uh, was helpful because you did kind of get a good, see, uh, good kind of feel mm-hmm. of maybe how things would go. But again, it's still very like non-scientific. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of things that they were, you know, asking about in this entrance polling are, you know, what is your biggest issue that you're thinking about tonight? 
as you caucus? Is it healthcare? Is it climate change? Is it the economy? So you get kind of these little pulse points. But um, yeah, it's definitely frustrating for everybody around that we don't have hard numbers yet. Well, um, you know, speaking of hard numbers, I think that's a good <laughs> good transition. Hard dollar dollar bills, uh, guys. Yeah, one uh, West Michigan uh, congressman or candidate is rolling in cold hard cash right now, and that's despite not being tied to either of the major parties. Right. That's uh, Rep. Justin Amash. Now he's the District Three Rep, and that's like Grand Rapids, Battle Creek, and Ionia. But uh, we paid attention to him because, well, our sister paper is in Ionia and that's in his district. And also, you know, it's just kind of an interesting you Yeah, know, this study. is becoming a really heated race for sure. Yeah. And, um, well, so the news that came out yesterday was that Rep. Justin Amash filed his uh, year-end quarterly for 2019. And in the fourth quarter of 2019, that's a three-month span, uh, beginning of October to end of December – the Amash campaign brought in nearly $600,000 worth of donations. That's by far the most ever in a single quarter for that district. And it comes despite, you know, and he's an independent as he left the uh, Republican Party uh, last summer. And the significance of that, um, when you're attached to a party, you typically get the party backing. This could be packed. Funding, uh, funding. This could be, you know, being tied to other donor events. We've seen multiple people campaign at once, and they get kind of a share of donations. Yeah, there, there's just the sheer infrastructure of, you know, mailing campaigns and, um, you know, party offices and th- that sort of thing that can be really helpful. But um, Justin Amash, you know, broke from the Republican Party. He started heavily criticizing President Donald Trump, and is now an independent, which. Um, will be sort of a fascinating test case to see how this goes over with his electorate. Um, but in his his press release saying, you know, we've raised buckets full of cash, he also specifically, you know, thanked his constituents for support, you know, um, despite his leaving the party that he was elected through um, and, you know, kind of far and above outraising all of the other candidates in this very crowded race. Yes. And the thing is, the one thing that, being an independent, uh, maybe has opened him up to is kind of a national base of donors. Absolutely, he's, he's receiving money from across the country. And I, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, you know, occasionally he'll he'll just tweet something very simple. He says, "Oh, I don't have a party behind me. Please consider giving to my campaign." Sure. And I guess it's working because yeah. um, for for a little uh, context, that six hundred thousand he raised in um, the final quarter brought him to a million. For the entire election cycle that started over a year ago. So he raised more in that quarter than he did in the rest of the campaign uh, combined because um, this is really the first time, you know, since leaving the party. I mean, it's the fir- first full quarter um, that he's had to fundraise. And it's really just kind of staggering. Um, and as we as we get into kind of how the other candidates in that race are doing, uh, it it's not a given, you know, fundraising does not equal votes, especially – now that this is going to be a three-way race, and that complicates things even further, sure. even for an incumbent. But um, the other, uh, the second highest receiving, uh, the second largest fundraiser was Peter Meyer, who is a Republican. Of um, the Meyer Grocery yes, Store family that, fame. that Meyer. Right. He's the grandson <laughs> of uh, current Meyer CEO, Hank Meyer. Um, and his campaign has brought in, I believe they brought in just over $300,000 in the final quarter of 2019, which is a good number. Sure. But um, 
And he separated himself from the other Republicans. He in that also, primary. yeah, he also ran a Super Bowl ad, um, which is you know a big chunk of change. I mean, yes, um, money doesn't necessarily equate to votes, but it does equate to exposure, which can be very important. Right, and and we've seen um, uh, his kind of notoriety go up. He received an endorsement from Rep. Jim Lauer, who before Meyer entered the race was kind of viewed as the Republican front runner for the right, primary, and right. then he dropped out. Uh, for family reasons, and gave his swung his support behind Meyer. What the interesting thing about this race is that, despite Justin Amash being very critical of President Trump as he is, he's still extremely conservative on most issues. Um, in fact, more conservative than most. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Maybe I don't know if he'll take enough of a Democratic voter base and district to kind of carry it over both parties. But if he and a Republican like Peter Meyer or any of the either ones um, running for that nomination, if they split the vote together, the conservative vote, and that might open it up for a Democrat to take the seat. And uh, right now there are two in contention for that as a pair of attorneys. Uh, Hillary Scholten, Scholten, um, she is an immigration attorney. She's based out of Grand Rapids. And Nick Colvin, uh, he is a economic development attorney that's kind of his focus he's based out of saranac now shulton has outraised colvin um by a bit but colvin is spending most of his money sure. it's very uh, interesting to see that despite their um their fundraising totals with shulton ahead she's significantly ahead in cash on hand because colvin is spending what he's getting on ads and other consulting uh, materials. Well, and it's also a very large district in terms of, you know, geographic span. Um, you know, if you think of the constituency in Grand Rapids, maybe very different than the constituency in Ionia County. Right. Um, so it, it, you know, will take a candidate that can kind of play well in, in all of the markets included in, in that fairly large district. Right. And, uh, you know, when I talked to, to Amash in, in August, the one thing he said to me, he goes, no, I'm not really worried about re-election. I have a lot of faith in my district. And we've seen that in terms of – I was looking at the Federal Elections Commission data. In terms of small donations, meaning less than $100, he is by far outpacing everybody else in the race, Democrat or Republican. Most of Meyer's donations are much larger because maybe he has a, you know, that kind of in with that um, large donor base. But – for Amash, you know, someone who used to have the support of people like the DeVos family um, and others like that, uh, he lost that after kind of condemning President Trump and supporting impeachment. Um, for him to be able to still raise this much support with smaller donations is pretty impressive. Now, it doesn't translate to votes. Anybody can donate to anybody as long as they're a citizen. So a person donating uh, to Justin Amash from California still can't vote for him. Sure. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, how this translates, but if he can keep this momentum up to the election, he is on pace to blow everybody away. Yeah, in terms of money. and it definitely, you know, will will kind of knock those naysayer, naysayers back a little bit and say, well, you know, yes, you know, I, I no longer have the backing of you know the machine of the Republican Party, and yet here are my totals, and they're still very high. Uh, so I, I think that it was a you know kind of big statement for the Amash campaign to say, you know what, we're still doing just fine. Uh, so it'll definitely be something to, to keep an eye out um, for future um, fundraising totals. And, and also just, you know, as we get closer, um, what what voters in, in this district are saying about, um, you know, how they feel about the 
the kind of switcheroo that they're seeing in, in the district that really shook things up. Right, right. And uh, Mosh has held that seat since 2011. So um, he's been there a while now. It'll be interesting to see um, if he can, if someone can out- unseat him or not. Well, anyway, Audra, I think that covers our bases today. Uh, kind of <laughs> all over the, a lot, right. kind of all over the place. Um, but hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, maybe we'll have results. Oh, gracious! I hope so. <laughs> you know, we can only hope. Uh, anyway, for Audra, I'm Art Van, and this has been from the newsroom, the weekly podcast of the Holland Sentinel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>